And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, And why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you the, that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Thanks be Thanks be God. God. Good morning again. As uh, Nick mentioned, my name is James Cooper. I'm here visiting with my wife, Madeline, and our little son, two-year-old Benjamin, over there. Uh, we live in the city now, um, but until recently, we lived out in West Chicago, um, and we're members of Trinity Hinsdale. So we've heard a lot about your church, and it's my pleasure to bring you God's Word this morning. Um, I hope that in the next 30 minutes together, I can be some service to you. But before that, please join me in a, in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come uh, to this. We come to this text. Oh. Um, in in a time of, of transition for the church, um, and I pray, Lord, that as we encounter Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, that He would encourage us with his power, that your voice speaking in the cloud to him would be an encouragement to our hearts. I pray that you would be with me this morning as I bring this word to our people, and I pray that you would make us receptive to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're in a section of Matthew's gospel known as the Transfiguration. We're in a section of Matthew's gospel. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> Known as the Transfiguration, that is, it's the time uh, in Jesus' life when uh, his physical appearance was transformed, transfigured, uh, in front of three of his disciples. This, this passage serves somewhat as a transition from earlier in Matthew's Gospel, uh, which talks about Jesus' birth and his early ministry, to the later parts of Matthew's Gospel, uh, when there is increasing hostility, Jesus is arrested, and eventually he goes to his death. And so because we're, we're jumping into the middle of Matthew, um, I think it might, be, it might be good to set the scene a little bit. 
So this is chapter 17. Uh, a little bit earlier in chapter 16, some big stuff happens. Um, the disciples and Jesus, they're hanging out, uh, and, and, and Jesus poses a question for them. It says, who do people say that I am? What do they say about me? And, and the disciples, they say, uh, they say everybody thinks you're, you're one of those famous guys that we already know about. Maybe you're, you're like Elijah or one of the prophets. You're one of those guys. In other words, you're, you're pretty great, Jesus, but you're nothing we haven't seen before. It's kind of like having uh, one of those conversations with a friend of yours where you're trying to talk about all these great new bands you like, and they keep comparing them to people they knew 10 years ago. Or... Uh, or, or the new Taylor Swift versus the old Taylor Swift. Same kind of stuff, just shades of difference. And lots of bickering over which one's better. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's at this point in chapter 16, when, when Peter speaks up, Peter's the bold one. And he gives us the first hint that maybe the disciples are starting to understand what's really happening. Who Jesus is. And why he came. Peter says in chapter 16 that Jesus is the Messiah. The son of the living God. Jesus would be the one that finally came to save his people. They'd be, they, he was the one they were waiting for. And Jesus blesses him. And reminds him that this revelation to Peter did not come from any man. But it came from God himself. You only know what you know. Because God gave it to you. To know. What a privilege. What an honor Peter felt at being the first of the disciples to make this great confession. And yet, something is still missing in Peter's understanding at the end of chapter 16. Or, or rather, something still needs to change in Peter. Because right after this glorious confession that Peter makes, makes where he finally starts to get it, we think, he sticks his foot right in his mouth. Maybe you have, uh, you have one of those friends that likes to talk first and think later. Maybe you are one of those people, like we all are from time to time. Well, Peter was one of those guys. He liked to speak first, think later. And when Jesus announces, this is at the end of chapter 16, when Jesus announces that his coming will bring suffering and will bring death for him and for his disciples, Peter denies him to his face. He says exactly the wrong thing. That's not going to happen. Or maybe more strongly, that's not going to happen. No way. You will not die. And it seems clear in that scene that following a suffering and a dying Messiah was not the gig that Peter signed up for when he agreed to be a disciple. And Jesus' response was probably meant to shock Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Can you, be, can you imagine being associated with the devil by Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. It had to stink. And it probably still stung. And I'm sure Peter carried that conversation with him. 
when he comes to the mountain at the beginning of our passage. Get behind me, Satan. You don't want to suffer. You don't want me to suffer. You're in my way. Get out of the way. Peter's conversations with, uh, with, with Jesus, in fact, all the conversations with the disciples, but particularly Peter, they tend to be dramatic. But their, um, their illustrations, I think, especially Peter, of what all of us are inclined to think following Jesus is like. In, in the Western world, so many people are, are familiar enough with the, the Christian faith that we probably don't feel um, exactly the same kind of personal embarrassment that Peter did at believing in a God who suffered and died at the hands of his enemies. Um, if anything, our embarrassment comes from believing in God at all, that he exists, um, not so much what he's like, um, but there are exceptions. I suspect, though, for, but that uh, for most of us, what, what's more striking about Peter's words, what's more striking about the way in which Peter denies Jesus is that um, at the root, what Peter expected of Jesus, what Peter expected of God's work in the world, what Peter expected of his own life as a follower of Jesus in the lives of his friends did not at all match up with what Jesus was called to and what Jesus was calling him and us to. More on that in a moment. Um, but as we, as we start to ascend up the mountain with the disciples in the story, I think, I think it would be helpful for us to have in mind those areas of life in which we expect or used to expect life as a Christian to be amazing. Think about those, those areas in your life um, where you expected being a Christian would be awesome. And maybe they're not so awesome anymore. Maybe they're not looking exciting or compelling or worth the effort in the way that they used to anymore. Areas of your life that might even now look a lot like suffering. Peter's carrying that up the mountain with him. Why? Why does God work like that? Why is following Jesus not more glorious? Why does being a Christian involve suffering? It's what Peter's carrying with him up the mountain. So after six days, uh, after following these conversations, after six days, um, the disciples go up the mountain to a scene that, that only makes sense in light of Old Testament parallels. This, this seems a lot like this, this odd, mystical experience that, that Peter and the other disciples are having, but uh, the clearest parallels to what's happening here um, come in Exodus 24, where Moses and Aaron go up a mountain, wait six days, there's a cloud, Moses sees the glory of the Lord appear like devouring fire. Elijah himself, who's also on the mountain, endures great suffering for the sake of God. And when the time of need comes, he experiences the presence of God on a mountain in 1 Kings 19. So there are a couple mountain scenes in the background here. Um, and here in verse 3, we see Moses and Elijah, who again, both encountered God in a, on a mountain elsewhere in the Bible, conversing with Jesus 
in his bright, glorious appearance, as if to say, or rather to shout at us, Matthew is shouting at us, two things. Firstly, that here, Moses and Elijah, standing in the presence of Jesus, clothed in majesty, are again standing in the presence of God. Secondly, that whatever anybody was saying about who Jesus was, what he was about, that he was just another Elijah or just another Moses, whatever they were saying out there, Jesus was not just another Moses. He was not just another Elijah. Uh, to be fair, the gospel writers do actually play on this comparison elsewhere. In many, in many ways, he's like Moses and Elijah, but he's also so much more. And that much is clear on the mountaintop. He was not just another prophet sent by God. He was God's son. He was unique. Which is confirmed here for the disciples to see. And Peter's response, it, it strikes us as a bit odd. I actually laughed when I first read it. As though he doesn't really grasp the seriousness of the situation. And that's probably right. He sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and immediately he wants to go build tents. It seems inappropriate. Uh, but the most charitable reading of Peter's action is that the tents were, they were a way of honoring Jesus and his special guests. We actually don't know how long exactly they were up there. They probably talked for a little while. That's how the disciples even knew who Elijah and Moses was. It's not like they had their pictures circulating. <laughs> so they were probably there for a little while, and, and gradually Peter, oh, these guys, uh, uh, let me get a tent for you. So that's the most charitable reading. But the, the, the irony of the whole scene, though, what makes it a bit odd is that this whole scene, the whole reason they're up here, is for Peter to teach him something. And he just can't keep himself from taking charge. He can't keep himself from talking. He can't keep himself from doing something. Notice in verse 5 that God actually has to interrupt him. He's in the middle of saying... Lord, I'm going to do this. And the cloud says, Peter, stop. Do you see what's going on here? He repeats the words he spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And he adds to it, listen to him. And the disciples fall on their faces. Because now they understand in whose presence they are in. Why does God work the way he does? Well, we have our first answer here. Because he can. Because he's God. Putting it that way might conjure up images in your mind of, of parents saying, because I told you so. That's, that's the parents' favorite line. That's, that's appropriate in many ways. Uh, but it always leaves the children unsatisfied. As a teacher, I often ask my students to, to do things uh, they neither wanted to do uh, nor understood. But as an aspiring parent of a te teenager and a former teacher of teenagers, I didn't mention that, I, I used to teach high school. Um, I know that there are some things which can only truly begin to be understood once they are experienced 
and you tell that to a teenager, and they're not very satisfied. But there is trust involved. The because I said so, or the do this assigned reading because it will be good for you lines, only work when there is confidence that the one giving the line is A, competent, B, truly loves us and desires our good. It's a hard thing that Jesus calls his disciples to do, to watch their master suffer as he's about to do, and to watch him die, and then to look forward to suffering themselves. That's, that's a hard thing that Jesus is calling them to do. They didn't get it at first. Peter especially didn't get it. But Jesus clearly shows, A, his competency to carry out whatever plan he wants. He is God after all. And in verse 7... He shows that he loves them. They fall on their faces terrified, which is an appropriate response. More appropriate than the earlier response. And Jesus walks up to them. And he touches them. And he tells them not to be afraid. Because he understands. He's about to go to his own death. For that. And for us. How many of us doubt one of these two things? Maybe not all the time. Maybe not in the same way every time. But when life does not live up to our expectations, one of those doubts will probably crop up in one way or another. Either God is incompetent or he doesn't care. And I felt that frequently often during times of major life transition, whenever nothing ever seems to be going quite according to plan. And maybe things make sense in the end, but until they do, they really don't. You unexpectedly lose a job in which you really felt like you were making a difference and have no idea who you even are anymore. You're forced to move and you lose all meaningful contact, and not just... Facebook friends, you lose all meaningful contact with the friends you used to love and were such an encouragement to you. You set a goal for yourself and you strive towards holiness in a particular area of your life for years. Something that the world maybe doesn't even care about. Something that maybe even other Christians care, don't care about. But you care about it because you know it's important to God in your sanctification. And you struggle with it. And you see so little fruit. And you start to wonder what God must be up to. You're called to speak God's truth in an uncomfortable or socially dangerous situation. For some people, a physically dangerous situation. These are all the trials which will shape you and mold you into greater Christ-likeness. But in the meantime, it just feels a lot like pain. It just feels a lot like suffering. And here Peter gives, or here Jesus gives Peter an assurance of both his power and his care before he sends him right back down the mountain to face the suffering that will come. And we need that assurance. Peter needed it. We needed it. God knows we need it. And that's why God gives us his word. That's why God gives us his sacraments. That's why God invites us to pray with and for one another 
when we gather every Sunday and when we gather in one another's homes, because he knows that we need all of these things to testify to us the promise that God is at work, that he is in control, that he loves us, that Christ is redeeming and sanctifying his people, and that this promise is for you, whatever it might look like. It is in humble submission to God's word, in whatever form it might take, that we find our fears stilled, our doubts removed. Listen to him, the cloud says. Listen to God's voice in his word. Of course, this doesn't fully answer the question, right, of why Jesus and God's people after him must suffer. In a sense, we went straight to the trump card. Everything happens according to God's plan. Question answered. But that's not entirely satisfying. We still kind of want to know whose fault is it? Some of us want to know. Why does this happen in that sense? And Jesus answers uh, in, in this kind of obscure conversation about Elijah. They start coming back down the mountain, and the disciples ask him about the coming of Elijah. After all, they just saw Elijah up on the mountain. So they've got Elijah on the brain, and they have questions about this little prophecy in Malachi 4, in which Malachi predicts that Elijah would come before the people and events they now attribute to Jesus. So they get that Jesus is the Messiah, and now they have this question about Elijah. Wasn't he supposed to come? And Jesus tells them that the prophecy is in fact fulfilled. They just haven't been paying attention. John the Baptist, who had been killed just a few chapters earlier, uh, was in fact the fulfillment of Elijah's ministry, Jesus says. He was himself Elijah in a figurative sense. And I'd like to focus on, on verses uh, 13 through 14, though, because it is here that Je Jesus clearly attributes the suffering of John the Baptist, that is suffering of himself, and by extension, the suffering of his disciples to the unbelieving mass of humanity. He says, the first Elijah was sent by God. He was ignored. The second Elijah... John the Baptist, he was also ignored, and he was killed. And now Jesus, who's kind of like a third Elijah, but greater than Elijah, he's also going to be ignored and killed. And this is all because, in verse 12, they do not recognize who Jesus, Jesus and John the Baptist and Elijah really are, and because they do whatever they want. In other words, suffering and death arise because of the hardness of the human heart towards God's messengers and towards his truth. That's why it happens. My wife and I, we, we just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary uh, about a month ago, which means I haven't been married long enough to know a lot of things, but I have been married long enough to know a few things, I think. Maybe in 10 years, I'll realize I was completely wrong and knew nothing. But I don't know that I don't know that right now. So I think I know. 
I think I know now that it was helpful in the beginning, as we were thinking about getting married, uh, to hear over and over and over again in many ways and for many people that marriage would be hard. This was the constant refrain. And there was part of me that probably didn't want to believe that. Part of me wanted the perfect, problem-free uh, marriage we all dream about from time to time. And, and part of me was tempted to ignore the warning. But these were not pastors or friends or books that were trying to scare me away from marriage. On the contrary, they were, they were pushing me towards marriage. And they loved me. They were trying to, to play games with me. And so, and so I took what they said. Because they knew that probably the week after the wedding, if not the day after the wedding, there'd be some argument, some disagreement, some thing that might happen, and they didn't want me to be surprised about it, because they cared about it. And so, when a week later, uh, after we got married, we were moving into our new apartment, and our, our tastes were in tension with one another, uh, my wife, um, she's a great decorator, and I just like nothing. <laughs> so that wasn't going to work out. Uh, <laughs> they were in tension with one another. Or, or when uh, a few months later our personalities were in tension with one another. Or when a few years later our career goals were in tension with one another. When the premarital counseling and the theory was over and real life hit and we were stuck with one another because we had made promises to one another that could not be broken. When all of that happened, we weren't surprised. When the suffering came and in marriage is a daily death to the self, which is a kind of suffering. Sometimes less and sometimes more. When the suffering came, it was not surprising. When the suffering comes in marriage, it's not surprising. And that doesn't make marriage any less painful or hard, but it does make it easier to trudge through the hard times. And to see God still at work, even in the midst of them. There is a kind of glory and a kind of beauty that comes in the end and all throughout the suffering. Somewhere between all of the moves, all of the disappointment, caring for a child, putting up with a selfish, prideful, at times very prickly husband, God has made my wife more beautiful to me than she's ever been. Because he's made her more like Jesus. And God works like that. We understand from the passage, and it bears repeating again and again, that Jesus is not at all surprised by his rejection. He's not at all surprised by his suffering, and neither should we be. It should not surprise us that people don't want to hear what we have to say about Jesus. It should not surprise us that outreach is so difficult to a world that doesn't want to hear about Jesus. It should not surprise us that friends, neighbors, and even close family members aren't immediately excited to join us in an evangelistic Bible study. That should not surprise us. And it should not surprise us when that rejection even takes on a tone of outright hostility. Personally, I think I would save myself a great deal of personal outrage and mental anxiety when I encounter things on the news or in the world, and I realize they shouldn't surprise me. 
Okay, that's not to say uh, that we shouldn't feel the wrongness of things. Okay, I'm not inviting us to cynicism about the, the things in the world that we see that aren't right. All I'm saying is that that for which you are not prepared has the potential to crush you, to discourage you. And so Jesus wants his followers to be prepared. They're off the mountaintop. They're back into the world. And he wants to make sure that they know what to expect. So that when the opposition, when the suffering comes, either outside of them in the world or inside of them as they they wrestle with their own personal struggles as disciples, when that stuff comes in our own hearts, as we struggle to die to our own sinful desires, God is still at work. And it is beautiful. Even if we can't quite see it now. That's what Jesus wants us to expect. Remember, at the beginning of this mountaintop journey, uh, Peter's problem was that his expectations were all wrong. But his expectations, they, they didn't come from nowhere. They were fueled by a desire to get and to do exactly what he wanted. They were fueled by a desire to see Jesus' ministry grow, become exactly what Peter wanted the ministry to be. Jesus was supposed to be this big shot Messiah on whose coattails he could ride to a high position in a new society. It was going to be good for Jesus. It was going to be good for Peter. It was going to be good for everybody. That's what Peter wanted. And who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be part of the most successful ministry this side of the Jordan? And this was, of course, exactly the line of thinking that Jesus' enemies used and why they ultimately concluded that he couldn't be the Messiah. He wasn't promising enough. So they killed him. Because my wife and I, we've, we've moved a lot over the past few years. I've been part of, of many Christian institutions in, in many churches in a very short period of time. And they all have a certain amount of drama. Sometimes it's financial drama. Sometimes it's personal drama. Sometimes it's just hypocrisy, which is its own kind of drama. And of course, other people are always the problem in churches, right? It's never even. And I've had, had moments when I thought to myself, how is God at work among such weak, quarrelsome, ineffective, ordinary people? What's God doing here? And that's putting it very bluntly and hyperbolically, okay? Um, there's no one church or people that I have in mind, so don't look me up and try to figure out. You know, <laughs> which church does James really have? <laughs> It's a composite picture of the reasons why I think I know better than God. Peter thought he knew better than God. There are lots of people that know better than God how to call the people and to redeem a world to himself. Ways other than through a dying Messiah, messy churches, and suffering Christians. And of course, we're all wrong because he's done exactly that and he will continue to do that until Christ returns please pray with me Heavenly Father we thank you for this time in your word
from Matthew. We pray that as we go into this week, possibly to a lot of pain, possibly to a lot of suffering, possibly even just to the little sufferings that come each and every day as we put to death the sins of the flesh and try to conform our lives to your likeness. We pray that you would bless us and you would help us to remember that you are with us, that you are not surprised, and that you are in control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.